Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome to another episode of the Insurgents Podcast. I hope you've been listening to previous episodes with my friend Mike Heiser, the author of Unseen Realm and the book Angels. You have to wear an asbestos suit to read this one. It's called Reversing Hermon. If you're really into demons and the demonic world and the literature that goes into the origin of demons, you might want to take a look at that. In fact, I want to ask you a question about it before we talk about the third Mm -hmm. set of bad guys in the spiritual realm, the principalities and powers, which we're going to devote this episode to. But in the book of First Enoch, Mm -hmm. which is a Jewish document, it talks about how the angels referenced in Genesis 6 who came down to cohabitate with the daughters of men, that is the women, they taught them different things that had to do with immorality, depravity, and warfare, mm-hmm. technology. Yeah. And the one that it talks about how they taught women to beautify themselves and make them objects of lust for men. Yeah, I, I think that phrasing that you just ended up with is the point. You know, scholars would refer to, to this particular element of, of teaching as, you know, arts of seduction. It, it's not that women, you know, godly women should look as unattractive as possible. You know, that, that isn't the point. The point is that there were certain, you know, practices in, in antiquity that would just lend themselves to either setting the stage or paving the way toward relationships that would be immoral. So the, the, the point is, is really immorality, basically transgressions of the way God wants us to behave, again, as believers you know, and have whole families that are, are really in view here. You, you could take all of these things and say that we have what First Enoch is really saying, what the, what the other ancient texts, Dead Sea Scrolls stuff really say when they comment on, on the Genesis 6 episode, is that you have supernatural intelligences that are involved in human activity with the specific purpose of helping humans to destroy themselves more efficiently. You know, weapons of warfare, well, that's easy to see how that works. But when it comes to something like this, you know, seduction, it's really the destruction of the family, the social unit, you know, cohesion, order, peace, you know, shalom. All of that needs to be undermined and destroyed. And immorality in our relationships is one of the, the chief means of supernatural intelligence to get us to do this. So that's really the point. You know, how, yeah. how can we get, how could we help humans to more efficiently destroy themselves? I've been reading articles where certain countries have used pornography to weaken the men by causing them to become degenerate and addicted. Like, like when you say using, you mean like, like they this is a, like a, a systematic they, campaign? Yes. They took over the media. Right. They took over the televisions and they pumped pornography yeah. constantly. Because you, usually a geopolitical culture would want a stable society. So what I'm interested in is what's the end game? The end game was to win the war, to take over. Because pornography is so addictive and it has not only spiritual effects, but yeah. it has mental and emotional effects right. too. If you want to weaken a society, if you want to destroy a society, pump it with pornography is the message. But I can imagine if I have an opponent, if I'm, again, if I'm the the geopolitical, we'll we'll make it a person here involved, and it dawns on me that, you know, how can I take these forces that are opposed to me? And by forces, I mean just the culture and even maybe military, because it's composed of men. How can I get them to a point where they're so distracted by the destruction sown in their own relationships that they can't focus. There you go. That's the trajectory I would think along. Yeah, and loss of motivation. Right. You have a serious addiction here. When things are right at home, then you can focus on this other thing. You don't have to work. It's not a constant distraction. Yeah, that's kind of a tangential thing, but the broad point is made. There is a difference between a woman out of pure motivation to, you know, maybe cover blemishes, acne, etc. 
and make herself look pretty, lovely, attractive, you know, for her husband or for a potential mate versus using makeup, using clothing to try to seduce and cause a man to lust after her. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like Enoch One is talking about that this is an object because women, I tell you what, what a woman wears and the use of makeup can be incredibly alluring to a man in a sexual way. Yeah, and I and I, th- I think that's what the, the admonitions or the yeah admonitions warning in, in First Enoch is about and, and what, you know, the backstory is about. It, it is about sowing this kind of discord um, using men, using the weakness of men, exploiting that weakness, again, to sow discord in the family and in the wider culture, to have the basic units of society disintegrate, to harm them, mm. to undermine them. Second Timothy 3, listeners can read it. It is a description, the beginning passage, of full-on degeneracy. And Paul says in the latter days. And mm-hmm. when I look at American society right now in the year 2019, it is a perfect description of what's happening, at least in this country, probably Europe, although I don't live there, mm-hmm. many countries in Europe. And when we talk about principalities and powers, we talk about demonic spirits, waging warfare against humans to destroy themselves you read that text and you can see this is being pumped every day through universities media youtube instagram and on and on and on it is so powerful i mean you can't turn uh, without seeing it somewhere this ensnaring you to begin to think along the lines of immorality and degeneracy and especially our young people are just soaked in it. Mm-hmm. If you have a smartphone, if yeah. you have an iPad, if you have a laptop and you're on social media, this stuff is being pumped into you day in, day out. And very few, very few Christians mm-hmm. can withstand it without being polluted in some way. It's yeah, really you, horrific. You, you have to really jump through a lot of hoops to, and the hoops are never perfect, but you have to jump through a lot of hoops to shut that stuff off. But again, the, the content providers, and I'm using scare quotes here, you know, they're, they're going to find a way to, to circumvent that. So you have to be vigilant. Absolutely. You know, so you, you have to be as intentional about it as the content provider is intentional Amen. about oh. putting it in front of your face. Perfect. You know? Say that again. That is you, so good. You have to be as intentional in, in thwarting this yeah. as the content provider is intentional in putting it in front of your, in front of your eyes, you know, yeah. making you see it. The principalities and powers. In earlier episodes of this podcast, in my book, Insurgents, and in Mike's book, The Unseen Realm, we give quite a bit of airtime to where they came from. But I would like to talk about what they do. And I find film and movies mm-hmm. interesting in that so many of them take some of these narratives that we're talking about that are based in scripture and in reality mm-hmm. and putting it on the screen for example you know you have these aliens that come in mm-hmm. right depicting the intergalactical oh. spiritual world to destroy yeah. humanity yeah. right yeah. wonder woman is a perfect example the movie was very popular a number of years right. ago and there was the god he was causing all the war it was Ares, yeah so you had that God causing all the war, and he shows up at the end of the movie. Yeah. And that's just straight out of the Bible. Right. You know? I, I'm up on my Wonder Woman here. So. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to pay attention to, to those facets of popular culture for that reason, because often this, the storylines are more or less a mimicking of the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Mm-hmm. Because the pagan cultures, you know, the stories of the gods and their interactions with people uh, will presume this. You know, even on the, on the you know, again, the, the secular side, let, let, me, let me unpack that a little bit. You can find, uh, when I say Deuteronomy 32 worldview, let's start there. I'm talking about how in, in biblical theology, the Most High divorces the nations. He confuses their languages. It's Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, which harkens back to Genesis 11, Babel. He divorces the nations. He allots them, assigns them to lesser gods who are initially placeholders. They are supposed to rule the nations justly. You know, God still loves humanity because they're his imagers. They're supposed to rule according to, to God's character and his, you know, his, his principles of justice. And you say, well, how do we know that? 
Well, we learned that from Psalm 82 because that's what they're accused of not doing. Let me hit pause here just for sure. listeners. The language may be new to you. When Mike is talking about gods and when these passages, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 82, etc., use the term gods, it's talking about celestial beings of a high order that are with the Most High but under God himself. But they're on the same team, okay? The scripture uses Elohim to describe them, which is translated gods. I like to say celestial beings mm-hmm. because when you say gods, you know, yeah. for most people... It, we should address so, that. I mean, yeah, go ahead. The, the reason it, it creeps us out to say gods is because we're taught by tradition that when you see the letters G, O, and D, that the letters G, O, and D mean a specific set of unique attributes. Okay, that is not what the letters G, O, and D actually mean. So, you know, when you see G, O, and D, you're, you know, we reflexively think of, oh, well, that's omniscience, that's omnipresence, that's sovereignty, that's creatorship. So the letters G, O, and D mean those, that set of unique attributes. That's actually not the case. And, and we know that biblically by the word Elohim. Biblical writers do not use Elohim to mean a specific set of unique attributes. You say, how do we know, Mike? Are we just supposed to take your word for it because you have a PhD and wrote a book? No. If you actually look up all the occurrences of Elohim, and I mean, I've done this work for you, but if you want to do it, you can. It's 2,300 of them or so. But you'll find that the biblical writers use Elohim of around half a dozen different entities that are not the God of the Bible, that are not the God of Israel. That alone should tell you that the word Elohim is not about a specific set of unique attributes. Because if it was, biblical writers would never use the word to refer to lesser entities. I'll give you an example. 1 Samuel 28, 13. This is the medium, the the quote-unquote witch of Endor. Uh, Saul goes to her and says he wants to talk to Samuel. Again, to cut the story short, we aren't told exactly what she does, but she does whatever she does, and it works, and she gets freaked out. And, and you know, she, she knows when she sees what she sees that the man talking to her is Saul, and she figures she's in trouble, you know, she's going to be arrested or put to death or whatever. But he says, look, don't worry about it. You're not going to be harmed. What, you know, what does he look like? You know, because the, the, the medium at Endor says, I see an Elohim coming up out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds really strange to our ear, but we have to realize that in the ancient world, the disembodied dead, the, the, the beings that are on the, in the spiritual world, you know, what we would think of as the afterlife, they were referred to as Elohim, supernatural beings. You know? So the, the term doesn't refer to attributes because no Israelite in their right mind, no biblical writer anyway, in his right mind is going to think that their, their dead child or their dead parents or their dead spouse is on the same level in, in terms of attributes as the God of Israel. It's absurd. Elohim does not mean a unique set of attributes, but we have been trained to think of G-O-N-D as though it does speak of a unique set of attributes. So we get creeped out when you put an S on it. What Elohim actually means is a being who, by nature, is a member of the disembodied spirit world. That's why it's used of all sorts of entities in addition to the God of Israel. It has nothing to do with a unique set of attributes. And so... You know, the way we think about this subject and even a term like monotheism doesn't quite uh, reflect what was in the, the head of a biblical writer. You know, what they believed was the uniqueness of, of Yahweh. And, and that's what we actually mean when we say monotheism. So what, what we mean by the term is coherent, is intact. It, it aligns with biblical theology. There is only one Yahweh. Yahweh is an Elohim. There's a bunch of Elohim, but Yahweh is one of them, but none of them are him. He is unique. And and the way we get that theology is not from the term Elohim. We get that theology from the way Yahweh is described in lots of passages in the Bible and by the fact that the biblical writers deny other Elohim the attributes that Yahweh has. This also ties into Psalm 82, which uses the term gods, Elohim. It's referring to something that Scripture refers to as the divine council. Yeah. 
and the, this is the a heavenly group, host, the heavenly, heavenly bureaucracy. Host. This is a group of celestial beings who are under God, but who are greater in rank and authority than angels. The classic, you know, d divine council idea is is a three tiered council. God is at the top. And, and God, meaning the, the, the triune being, again, uh, I spent a lot of time in Unseen Realm talking about how Israelites believed in a Godhead, again, what, what we think of as a trinity. Uh, that, that comes from the Old Testament. It's not something Christians invented, uh, contrary to lots of stuff you'll see on the Internet or YouTube. Uh, it comes from the Old Testament. So that's, you know, that's who's at the top. The middle tier are referred to, you know, in a number of ways, but sons of God is the most useful. Mm -hmm. Uh, because the king, you know, the, the one at the top had a, an inner circle, typically family members. You know, nepotism was encouraged in the ancient world. Uh, so sons of God is a way of describing the, the elite inner circle uh, of his household and his administration. And then underneath you have the malachim, which are, is a, the Hebrew term for angels. They take messages. It, it's kind of like a, it, it's it's a lesser job description. It, yep. It's it's less important in terms of status than you know sons of God or something like that. But you know the Old Testament has very granular terminology that gets blurred. You know a, you know, a little bit later on, and certainly in our tradition it gets blurred. But Psalm eighty two is is basically God is having a meeting with these Elohim, and you say which Elohim? Well, we find out in verses two through five of the psalm, he excoriates them for sowing chaos in the nations. You know, so, so we, we kind of know who he's talking about here. And if we have the, the Old Testament primeval worldview in our heads, we know that, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, God assigned the nations to sons of God in Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. The divine council. Divine council. You know, he, 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 some of those members were allotted to the nations and, you know, they that they're supposed to do a job and apparently they aren't doing it because God's real ticked off. And, you know, God says in verse six to them, he said, he said, I, I said to all of you and the you there is plural in, in Hebrew, you are Elohim, you know, all of you, you're gods, but you're going to die like men. Mm. So he pronounces a, a judgment on them. And then the, the, the last verse has the psalmist crying out and says, Arise, O God, you know, take the nations, you know, yeah. subdue the nations, take the nations back. And so that, that's our other contextual clue that he's talking about the sons of God, the Elohim, the celestial beings there in Deuteronomy 32. They, they become corrupt. We're not told when, but by the time we hit Psalm 82, they are certainly deeply corrupt. And I would say it, it happens in fairly short order, because if you look at the biblical narrative, when Babel happens and God abandons the nations, he, he assigns them to these lesser agents, he gets fed up with humanity. What does he do in the, in the next breath, you know, in the, ne the next episode? There's the call of Abram. Genesis 12. And, yep. and, and, and Genesis 12, following right on Babel, doesn't forget the nations because when God makes a covenant with this one person, and his wife, who can't have children, so she's perfect. <laughs> she's perfect for the job. He's going to supernaturally raise up huma a new humanity because mm -hmm. he's just abandoned humanity. He says to this, this person, Abram, you know, it's going to be through you and your seed that all of these other nations are ultimately going to be blessed. I mean, that he becomes the conduit through which those nations will be brought back into the family someday. But that episode and the call of Abraham framed the rest of the Old Testament. It's why the rest of the Old Testament is Yahweh against the gods, because those gods allotted to the nations, they, they become adversaries. You know, they, they become opponents. Well, they actually become the pagan gods. Yes, they do. That they, the pagans worshipped and Israel right. was seduced into worshipping yep. too, which God warned them not to do. And that's also in Deuteronomy 32, which rehearses the whole history of this thing just becoming a mess. Yeah, every ancient culture assigns names to these entities. You know, and usually names are given on the basis of geography or some perceived attribute or some event. And then something about the event becomes a symbol for that deity. I mean, it's a very natural process. But all, all these cultures assign names and, and importance and hierarchy and, and a system of worship to these other beings. But ultimately, they were created by the Most High of the Bible, who creates all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. And they, they owe their allegiance to him, but they rebelled. And they're going to be judged by him, by the Most High. 
and, and what's really significant, and we, this is getting ahead of ourselves, but five or six times Paul, when he talks about the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, he links that to the, to the demise, the nullification, and ultimately the destruction of the principalities, powers, rulers, authorities, and all that. Because that's that's, where, that's that Paul gets those terms from Deuteronomy 32. How do we know that? Because all of his terms have geographical context. Okay. They are all terms used of geographical dominion. Yep. So he he knows this, and again, Daniel gets his theology from Deuteronomy 32. Yep. But but he, it's interesting because the Most High became incarnate in Christ, the very same God that gave them their authority in the first place, against whom they rebelled. He came to earth as a man, died, rose again, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is and all authority has given been given to him not only in the heavenly places but on earth. Yeah. That, that's the Great Commission. That's the verse we skip in the Great Commission. It's verse 18 before we get to 19 and 20. All authority has been given to me on earth. Okay, yeah. He is the one who reclaims the nations. And how's that done? It's through the Great Commission. It's through the, it's through the advancement of the kingdom yeah. of God. You know, yeah. They all come back. And, and so Paul, in his mind, links the resurrection and ascension to the ultimate defeat and judgment of the gods of the nations. And at the end, when we get to the book of Revelation... You know, that's when Jesus speaks to believers and says, hey, to, to him that overcomes, I will put him over the nations. To him that overcomes, I will, I, will, I will offer him to sit on my throne with me and rule the nations. Well, who rules the nations now? Who's over the nations now? The gods who are fallen, who are in rebellion. We are going to displace and replace them in the new Eden. Yeah. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, he tells believers, we acquit, stop, we, we acquit fighting amongst yeah, yourselves right. and taking each other to court again, you know, with these human judges. Don't you know, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, that you're going to judge angels? Don't you know that? Sons of God, remember, we're the, we're the children of God in the New Testament. It, it's kind of interesting how sons of God, children of God, holy ones, the terms that are used to the heavenly host in the Old Testament are applied to human believers in the New Testament. We take that middle rank in the three-tiered council. And who are we above? Angels. Who do we displace to hold that rank? The principalities and powers. It's a very consistent theology. But we, we lack, I mean, every verse that I just alluded to, your listeners are going to be familiar with those verses. But what they lack is they lack the Deuteronomy 32 framework into which they fit. Well, some of them. Some, well, some of them, them yeah. The ones who you know are new to this, the ones who have been listening for a while, they get it because they've been immersed in this. But I do want to say something about the principalities and powers tying all this together into the gospel of the kingdom. When you mentioned Daniel, Daniel 10 talks about the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, and those are not human princes. Those are spiritual, celestial entities, the fallen beings yeah. who are over the nations. And Michael is their counterpart. We know they're supernatural because their counterpart yes. is a supernatural being. They may have been archangels for all we know before they fell. Well, look, look they, at the council terminology. What does archangel mean? Ruler of angels. Ruler Again, it's a higher rank. A higher rank, absolutely. And this gets into hierarchy, which... I want to talk about later. I wrote an article, I'll put it in the show notes, The Origin of Hierarchy and Human Government. But going back to principalities and powers, they are over the nations. Even now, there's warfare between the um, agents of God, Jesus Christ being head of the agents of God. And when the gospel of the kingdom is preached and received, what that does is it brings into being people who are fleshing it out because they're living as disciples under the Lordship of Christ. This plays into the foolish of the Gentiles, but also creates a kingdom community. And in Ephesians 3, we have this line, the ecclesia, the kingdom community, manifests the multifarious wisdom of God to, in effect, shame principalities and powers. Mm -hmm. And so there is a connection between the ecclesia of God, the kingdom community that displays Jesus Christ and is submitting to and being placed under the headship of an invisible Lord who has defeated principalities and powers. And when that happens, when God's people submit to and live under, not only individually but in community, the Lordship of Christ, who is an invisible being, it puts to shame the principalities and powers. So that's one of the mechanisms in the mysterious purpose of God that works into their undoing. 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot there that we can it's, explore later on. It's both on, an illustration and a point of destiny. Yeah. Because we are we are going to inherit not only what they could have inherited or be part of had they not rebelled, but the way the rule of the principalities and powers often works out on earth is this myth of utopia. And I, I think that's mm. I think that is actually a theological big deal. Mm. Because it shows what what the pursuit of utopia is is an impulse that wants to restore Eden, but yes. but they want to restore it on their terms, or or people just unconsciously want what Eden represents, and they are either blinded to how that is rebuilt, you know, through the kingdom of God, you know, through allegiance to Jesus, or they are deceived into thinking it's something attainable through human means and authority. We want to get back to the garden. Yes. It's a popular motif in songs it's, and movies. It's it's the yes, it's it's a it's just a, a recurring it never goes away in human history and it's manifest in literature and now you know film and te- you know, it's it's a consistent theme. To restore, to reverse Babel, to go back to Eden. Yep. And God says, Yeah, I give that two thumbs up. I want to do that, but guess what? I have a plan for that. Right. It's not your plan. Yeah. And and you know because because of the of the of the hunger for autonomy, the resistance to authority. Humans messed it up. Supernatural beings mess it up. They want the authority for themselves. And but but the impulse never goes away. It becomes perverted and inverted. Yes. You know, with, with the power holders and the authority, you know, figures being lesser beings, both yeah. either either human or supernatural, and a resistance to God's own authority and own program. But God never gives up on the original vision. He has his own plan. He will get his way. He's not surrendering it. That's right. But the Amen. spiritual warfare actually actually involves the combat between these dual visions That's of right. how things get to be brought full That's circle. Right. That's right. And one is independent of God, and one is completely dependent and unified with God and by God. The principalities and powers, interestingly enough, when you when you look at the biblical narrative, particularly the New Testament, you discover that the term, which is also translated rulers and authorities, Mm -hmm. sometimes refers to human rulers and authorities over governments. Mm -hmm. Other times it refers to those cosmic celestial beings that we're talking about. Isn't it it interesting that they're tied together? Because they are tied together. (laughs) In reality, they influence one another. Particularly the spiritual side influences the role of government rulers. And and let let me say one thing here. There's a lot of biblical reference literature that will, will observe that and say, well, see, you know, these are just people. Well, why does it have to be an either or? Why can't it be a both and? Yeah, it's not. You know, just people. I mean, let, let's think a little more carefully, especially about the context against which these terms are set in the Old Testament. Again, the the, the Deuteronomy thirty two worldview. I keep using that phrase. It's really important. It frames the way we should comprehend this vocabulary later on. Yeah. It's not either or. It's both and. Yeah. And there's a profound influence. Well, even in 1 Corinthians, we are told that the rulers and authorities, in effect, put Jesus to death. Mm-hmm. Well, who did that? Who are the rulers and authorities? Well, on one level, it was the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. Mm-hmm. Another level, Isn't it that was interesting? The Jew and Gentile. <laughs> Jew and Gentile. It was the spiritual, cosmic, celestial yep. beings, the principalities yep. and powers who were operating through them. So that, which ones did it? The answer is... Yes, both. And the article I'll put in the show notes, The Origins of Human Government and Hierarchy, I make the point that human government was never God's idea from the beginning. That's why when he had Israel, it was not to be like the other nations. Mm -hmm. Of course, they forced it and they wanted a king like all the other nations. But God's plan was something totally different. And also, I believe the concept of hierarchy, that top-down leadership, was meant and created for angelic beings, celestial beings. It was never created for humans. And so when humans were corrupted by the fall, they immediately took that structure that was meant to be for the celestial beings, brought it right into every phase of their life. And you see it everywhere. The military, public schools, most jobs, etc. But you also find it in the church. Mm-hmm. And there's always domination when you have that pyramid structure. There's always potential for, because we're fallen humans, tyranny and so forth. But you didn't have that in the angelic realm. Now, in the demonic realm, you do have that same hierarchical structure. Do you think, do you think, I mean, I would, I would add this thought. 
I mean, certainly, if you're look, if you're thinking Edenic vision, you know what what you said makes perfect sense. I look at it as the grace of God, though, as and I don't I don't know if this is the right word. It seems like the grace of God is is present even in this because God and here's the word I'm not sure about it if it's a good word adapts to it because you know there there are rules in Deuteronomy for kings. Yep. God not God doesn't undo kingship with David. He in fact creates a Davidic dynasty. In other yep. words, he works within the model. Absolutely. But but the kingship was not the end. It was a it was a way station. And it to, wasn't to, his original right, vision. Right. It, it's a way station back to the original vision. Yep. In the original vision, when that gets accomplished, Jesus is king and, and yes, we are co regents with him. But that's not the same as the way this works out in real time on earth, you know. You know, God is good. He again Hierarchy and government can restrain evil, even though in our culture most of the time yes. it encourages. And that's how he uses it, Romans yeah. 13. You know, they're, so they're, God adapts to it. He uses the models. Yep. But again, as we talk about this dual dualistic vision and this, this conflict, for a lot of people, the state and, and even smaller, you know, the leadership in the church becomes the be-all, end-all. That's right. You know, and, and, and that is that's that's a fatal flaw. It, it's a, and it's a, it's also a really significant mistake in perception that if we just using our smarts, just you know submit you know to this form of government, whatever it is, that that everything's going to be be better. Well, no, because I mean, haven't we learned yet that all forms of this fail? And, right. and it, you know, and, and you, today we we have you know. Well, if if we were in charge, we would just implement the situ the, the system better. Yeah, right. It it would work this time yeah. because it's no no. The you're still it, you know question number one: Are you still human or not? Are you you know? See, and now we even get artificial intelligence. Oh yeah. See that 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 on one hand is a concession to the to our failure. But we are still creating our own gods. That's right. It 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 still shows. By virtue of positioning us as the creator of, of, of this now intermediate being, this artificial intelligent eight robots, whatever it is, we're still their creators. And so we are, we are still imagining the solution to this problem as being of human means, even if we lose control of it. <laughs> Which many people are warning, including Elon Musk about the loss of control, this AI being out of whack. And this brings me Be careful to, what you wish for. <laughs> be, this brings me to another point, and you talk about scaring people. All the other stuff I, I don't think really is scary compared to this. And I don't know how far we want to probe this nerve or how deeply we want to probe this nerve, but when we talk about the principalities and powers, these celestial beings that are controlling in effect and influencing human rulers and authorities and government, we also have to add to it the technology that we have. And one of the things that I find super fascinating is the speech by Dwight Eisenhower when he left office. This was given in January 17th, 1961. It's his farewell speech. He warned, and I'm going to give the exact quote, he warned about public policy becoming the captive of a scientific technological elite yeah and right now when we look at technocracy yeah technocracy when we look at silicon valley when we look at all the things that are being pumped out through youtube facebook instagram you know social media etc and ai he'd be horrified Eisenhower would be horrified. And he saw it and he warned that. Now, now, something that many of our listeners may not know, but NASA, the actual space program, was run by German scientists who were Nazis, who were brought over to the United States have after you, the war. Have you read my novels? <laughs> no, I haven't read your novels, but I've read about... This is a big theme. The I've, I've read about Operation Paperclip, yeah. which people can look it up. Yeah. But the Nazis are known for being part of the occult. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were exploring that deep and wide. The 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 SS or the or the Himmler and the SS, the guys running the SS were the devotees. They were the high priests of a a nationalistic occult system. You know, if you're a member of the SS, you're you're swearing your allegiance to that system, and you're buying you're being taught it. You're you're buying into it. There are scholars who try to undermine this by referring to Hitler, who got rid of all the mediums and occult mystics. And yeah, I mean, we're not—we don't have to—we're not worried about Hitler here. 
Okay, Hitler is, is the messianic figure both in his own head and of these people, but their system doesn't need Hitler. Hitler's going to die at some point, you know, and, and Himmler, again, is fancying himself mm. as both high priest and king, you know, of this order. So Nazi occultism on that level should be taken seriously because it drove, it, uh, it was the religion for the people. It framed the worldview that was to be, you know, the, the next millennial Reich, mm -hmm. the third Reich, mm -hmm. the third millennium. So if you connect the dots here. And there's a lot of good scholarly material on this. Oh, this this is, we're, we're not doing, sure. we're not doing intellectual history by YouTube and Billy Bob's, you know, you know right. website. Oh, yeah. This is, there's a lot of material on this. Yeah, well, look up Operation Paperclip, and you'll see that the German scientists were brought over here. I'll, they I'll were plug, Nazis. Yeah, I'll, I'll plug Annie Jacobson's book. Hers is the latest on Operation Paperclip, um, and she had the advantage. There, there, there were two other uh, book-length studies of this that are much older, you know, 20, 30 years older. So Annie has the benefit of some recently released archival material, Interesting. You know, and so I think her book is the best, even though the, the two that preceded it are good. Yeah. But I would, if you're interested in Operation Paperclip, that's the one to get nowadays. And so you have the you have the public side, which is Nassau, but then you have this other side that they were involved in. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that, that I believe Eisenhower was warning about. And then you had John F. Kennedy, just a few months later, April 26, 1961, President and the press addressed before the American Newspaper Publishers Association. This is what he said. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we as a people inherently and historically opposed are opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. So there has been research done, again, where you have the technological elite, mm -hmm. which, which we see everywhere today and we see the manifestations of it a lot of it we don't know about we know that we're being recorded and monitored through smartphones and smart tvs i mean that's fact that's even in the literature when you right. look at it right. you, can, yeah, you, you can google that on, on yeah i mean right now we're it. talking about this if your phone is on yeah <laughs> i didn't think about this we should have turned our phones off <laughs> well, this is going to be public anyway so <laughs> yeah, who really? cares okay. yeah. who cares we have the technological elite, and when, when you look at what's being pumped in, you talk about the media. If we want to undermine society, you know, move the herd. Let's just brainwash them. Let's just degenerate them with degeneracy. And then you have Kennedy talking about secret societies, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think the two go hand in hand. And so all of this ties into principalities and powers. They are influencing governments. They're influencing people of power. They're influencing people who have power, and they're evil, dark forces. And Paul talks about them in Ephesians six that our warfare is not with flesh and blood. It is with it is with these and against these spiritual entities. Yeah, in, in my fiction, I have two novels, and I'm I'm into a third, and they're they're all they follow each other. So, the first one is the facade, and the second one is the portent. And the third one will be called The Cipher. I use science fiction to piggyback theology onto mm -hmm. it. Um, I, am, I am personally a small c conspiracist. Uh, I, my fiction it, you know, traverses a, a bit into the big C, but not much, because I think the small c is quite adequate <laughs> to express the, how supernatural agents are at work to undermine people on, in a large scale. Uh, again, it's about controlling herds. It's about moving herds. It's about capturing thinking. That's all you need to do. And frankly, humans can do that too. So why would we suspect that a, that a supernatural being can't do it? You know, th th these things work symbiotically. Yes. You know, so I use, I use the vehicle of science fiction for this. And my, my supernatural enemy or enemies in the books... I don't have them doing bizarre things. What, what I try to do is, I, I try to do what, what Crichton did, and I'm not, I'm not claiming I'm as good or entertaining as Crichton, but Crichton's novels were always based on factual science, factual data, and then he would invent a story around them. So all of, this is why I have on the cover of my novels, you know, everything in the book, you know, every document, every technology, every this and that is real. 
and, and I, that's not just marketing shtick. It's true. Everything in the books, it's all real. What's, what's the fiction are the way I take those dots and connect them and the story I create around them. Um, like so every every government document that's referenced in one of my novels that's real you, you can go go find it I mean I, I've, I create handbooks for the novels so that people don't have to do all that work I just I hand it to them you know after the fact but this is this is part of it you know the, the military industrial complex is a big deal and it is used both for I think in our day and age more overt control uh, as for, I'll give you one example your listeners can track this down they're probably already aware of it but the Internet of Things mm. is a huge deal. Uh, your, your smart car, your smart refrigerator, your smart microwave, your smart fill-in-the-blank, they are all networked and can, and can be controlled remotely. To me, I, I don't want that stuff. I don't want a government authority shutting off my electricity when they say I've had enough. I don't want them you know, shutting down my, my fridge or my phone or you know, you know, my car commandeering my vehicle. I mean, you, you can just, you can go to YouTube and, and, and find videos on, on people who hack into cars just to see, just to show people that this can be done. And when, when all, what, what the ultimate goal is an internet of things, where everything in your house, everything that uses electricity or that uses wireless will be controlled somewhere else. Yep. It's, and it will be, it will therefore be monitored yep. and under someone else's authority. And this is marketed as a wonderful thing. The marketing on this stuff is great because they'll usually illustrate it to you by, by using a task that's really inconvenient or hard. And, oh, your smart thing, you know, takes care of this. And it does, but at what cost? They never, they never tell you that part. Well, we, we could be talking, just to give people an example of this. By the way, the military-industrial complex is a word that Eisenhower used in that same speech. Yep, same and he speech. warned against it. When, when you hear that phrase and technocracy, it's the same thing. It's yeah. two sides of the same two coin. Two sides of the same coin. But Mike and I can be having a conversation on parrots as pets. And his smartphone's on, my smartphone's on, or maybe the television is on. It's a yeah. smart TV. And you'll get an ad. And you will see an ad <laughs> come up your Facebook feed or your Google feed talking about parents. Yeah. My, my, That's my, how this works. Right, my so wife and kids. Right now. This, this is not future. This is now. Yeah. They, they, this happens to them all the time. They're like, like, I know my phone's listening to me because, you know, and, and there it is. And and right now, you know, you can look at it and chuckle at it. But again, I since I, I have my head in this world because of, of, you know, fiction, it's, I have a huge, I mean, hundreds, I have a huge spreadsheet of really exotic technology that's real that operates to, for any, any number of purposes. And what I do when I write now, I just cherry pick, oh, that would be good. Let, let's do something with that in this scene, you know. It, it, it's easy. It, it, honestly, it's ubiquitous. But, but people aren't really looking for it or they don't recognize it when they see it. Ubiquitous, by the way, folks, means everywhere. Everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere. So this is not, you know, Frank's correct. I mean, this is not out in the future. Someday this will, no, it's, it's actually right now. Um, and, and the stuff that they are working, usually if, if the public gets a technology, that's usually 25, 30 years or more after it was developed, probably for some other reason by, a, you know, like we, we hear all the time when with NASA, when, when people want to legitimize what NASA does to legitimize their funding. Look at all the products that came out of the space program. You know, and, and it's simple stuff that you use every day in your house. Now, the space program used it for a different thing, but then that technology was passed down the line. It was seeded to business, and business, you know, creates things from it for the consumer. So, yeah, we get a lot of benefit, vestigial benefit from, from the, uh, the NASA yeah. space program. But you have to realize that those technologies don't always end in, in your kitchen. <laughs> Sometimes they end at much more sinister places yeah. than your kitchen, you know. But this is how the the, the, the tech mean, world works. Meaning, what exactly? Well, NASA can can develop a technology that will be will be utilized again by, you know, the, the military will say, or or some other you know governmental right, right in for to do some other task. Technology is just about accomplishing tasks. 
you know, you, you take this thing and you apply it to this what situation. What you say in a sinister whatnot. way other than in your kitchen. What I'm talking about we weaponry or monitoring yeah, or okay. control, got it, got it. you know, control the population. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, exactly. And I'm going to add another layer to this. You, you, if you aren't you're, freaked you're out audience, already. Your audience, you should Google non-lethal weapons. Oh. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Spend your time if, doing that. If, uh, yeah, that'll, that'll take you down the rabbit hole. Um, one of my concerns about <laughs> this stuff is that People who are curious are just going to go crazy researching and be distracted and, you know what I mean, from the things that really matter. Yes. But it is important to have some understanding of some of the stuff, right. I think. Instead of figuring out who the bad guys are and what they're working on and why, I think it's a better use of time to ask yourself, okay, when they get the Internet of Things or when government institutes soft tyranny, which is a transition point to something worse, okay, when we lose control of our autonomy, what we perceive as our autonomy, just in our day-to-day -day life, how will we still be able to accomplish the Great Commission? We should be thinking now about how to function when all of the things we use now are no longer available. Things like buildings, things like websites, things like phones, okay, that, that will be subject to monitoring and turning off and turning on. How do we do this? I've been, I've been on this hobby horse for a couple of years now of just trying to encourage, you know, churches, don't, you know, don't, don't get absorbed and, and, and people, don't get absorbed with the conspiracy kind of stuff. If you woke up tomorrow and you figured out which secret societies are real and which ones aren't, who's responsible for what historical event or tragedy? You know, who are the, who are the weird bloodlines and the occultists? You know, who are these people? And if, if you knew all their names, everything they've done, everything they're planning to do, if, if you knew all of that, what would it change? Mm -hmm. And the answer is nothing. Absolutely. You, you can't control you any can't of that. You can't control. You can't do anything right. about it. Your job is still the same. Yep. Your job is to make disciples. So the question is, can, what can we do now to reimagine how to do that task when we're, here's a hint, when we're like the third world? Okay, when we don't have any of this stuff, when we're under persecution, you know, we look at the church in the West and say it's dying. Mm. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard to, to resist that, that conclusion. But if you look at the church elsewhere, it's thriving. Now, they, they are willing to suffer. But, you know, church under persecution, China, Africa, third world situations, they know how to function in these circumstances. And they're doing the job. Yeah. You know, we need to learn how to do that so that when the time comes, we're not going to miss a beat. I think this ties into, Mike, the drum I've been banging for a long time, and that is the kingdom community. The community of the people of the king having and learning how to be in face-to-face -face community. And it starts out with what I've talked about many times, creating a kingdom cell. And sisters and brothers, we're living in a time where this is going to be the necessary lifeline. God designed to be the environment in which we live, breathe, and have our being. To just receive the gospel of the kingdom and try to walk it out yourself as an individual, you're not going to get very far. And so I just want to exhort you in light of all that we're saying, as well as the spiritual warfare piece that we've been talking about, really take seriously this idea of starting a kingdom self. Not hard to do. I give the outline on my blog. It's also in the book Insurgents. There is an insurgence going on, and God is calling you to be part of it. I want to add one other layer to this, and that is the term pharmakia, which is listed in the works of the flesh. Mm -hmm. And pharmakia, as I understand it, has to do with the interconnection between the use of illicit drugs and contacting the spirit realm. Mm -hmm. sorcery, for example. It's listed as one of the works of the flesh. A part of this technological elite, secret societies, movers and shakers who are being influenced by principalities and powers, is that there is a subset that is experimenting with certain kinds of drugs, mm -hmm. namely DMT and ayahuasca, mm -hmm. and reporting that they are experiencing encounters with what they think are alien beings. Mm -hmm. And you've done a lot of research on aliens, 
and have concluded that a lot of what's happening there in these so-called encounters is they're encountering celestial demonic spirits. Mm -hmm. Well, this apparently is happening or could be happening, at least I've heard reports of it, where you have these technocrats who are using these sorts of drugs to contact the spirit world and to get intelligence. Mm -hmm. This harkens back to Enoch, mm -hmm. right? For technology, for the agenda to bring about the utopia, but of course, in a way that... All right, the way to understand this is is have the word insight in mind. Certain drugs are going to produce altered states of consciousness, and some will even will even say that they go further than that to, to producing like an out-of-body experience. So you, you essentially have two related avenues for doing something to your brain that opens it mm -hmm. in, in a certain way to get souped up creative insight. Now that, that's the way that, that most people in the tech world are gonna talk about doing these things. That I, I need this or I, I do this to get my brain to work in a different way or on a higher level or something like that. You know, they'll, they'll try to describe it in, in certain terms. Others will, again, go down exactly the, the, the trajectory that, that you just described they believe that they are contacting external intelligences and getting information for how to proceed and do whatever it is they're doing. And, and you can read any, any number of these sorts of things uh, about any of these sorts of things in the, in the tech world. Um, and you'll see it described in, in different ways. Again, just essentially doing stuff to fiddle with your brain to make it work better is, is again how it's perceived by most but some some either know because of experiences they have or or believe they're trying to solicit an external intelligence now it, it's ironic that you have people in the tech industry thinking on these terms when supposedly the scientific community doesn't believe in a reality beyond the material mm. do not be deceived interesting many of them do yes okay they're not calling it they're not fitting it into the Judeo-Christian worldview. They're not even using that terminology. But they believe that consciousness can exist independent of the body. There's your dualistic worldview that the materialistic world is supposed to deny, if you're a scientist, okay? They believe this. And, and they believe that they're, they're tapping into this stream that we call, you know, we think of as consciousness, that outlives the material. And either they're contacting some great mind that has gone before them, or they're contacting an external source of information. And they may not put religious trappings on. They won't call it a demon or a principality or power. They they'll use they'll use words that make them feel better, an ascended master, or you know, some real smart dude, or whatever. You know, they'll, they'll do this kind of stuff. And this is very old. I mean, if you want to talk about just one point of connection to the technocracy, the military industrial complex, it would be Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was the head of JPL, Jack Parsons Library. You know, I mean, he, he was a rocketry guy and a really important figure in the history of rocketry and, 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 you know, military applications of that. He was a devoted occultist. You know, he was the guy that, you know, in his garage, you know, he's trying to, to repeat Aleister Crowley's, you know, experiments, you know, Let to, me... to contact, you know, the, the other side. He blew... He died early because he blew himself up in his garage. Let me hit pause on that. If you research famous scientists and inventors who were involved in the occult, mm -hmm. it'll blow your mind yeah. because many of them were. Right. Names that if I mentioned now, them, listeners would know who they were. Right. And you, and you could say, you, know, you might wonder, well, how in the world did they get started down this, this path? Well, scientists experiment on themselves. That's just what scientists do. They take these kinds of risks. They therefore have certain experiences both within and, and without. And so for a number of them, that, that pulls them in to, to experimenting, to doing these sorts of things. And they become um, believers in the process and in some cases of, you know, again, higher intelligences because of what the, their experimentation produced. You know, in other words, it gets results. So they, they may not be worried about parsing the results against, like, a, like we said, a Judeo-Christian worldview. And they may be totally shut off, that, or they may be totally ignorant of it, too. Because basically these guys, some of these guys spend their life completely devoid of any sort of religious context. So they, they may not know, or they may know and just reject. But that doesn't startle me. I, I've spent enough time, you know, in, in this area to know that, yeah, you know, a lot of them do that. And they, they believe in it. They're committed to it. 
uh, for various reasons. They, they think it gets results. But you do have a subset of, of that set that really believes, they, they look at themselves as avatars. You know, they, they become channels, mm-hmm. you know, for, for a higher intelligence. Yeah. And, and, and they position themselves in their own minds, their own thinking. Mm-hmm. And if they have enough money and power in the real world as, you know, the, the gatekeepers, yeah. you know, for, for this kind of thing, you know, and, and they, they lie to themselves. Yeah. It's a self-deception that I can control this and control its results. So none of that is big C conspiracy stuff. That's all just a matter of looking up these people's biographies exactly. and, and reading what it's they well thought. Documented. So, you know, we need to be a, a bit aware of this and, and realize that going back to my, if I were, if I were a, 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 an overlord of supernatural darkness, okay, if I were a watcher or something like that, I would want to work smart, not hard. I don't need a million people to buy into this. I need two or three that are going to, to commit themselves to it and that become the object that I steer because they're going to create things that move herds. That's yeah. what I need. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not an insurmountable task. Again, I'm looking to work smart, not hard. Yes. And that's exactly what the and forces I, of darkness are I try are doing. to illustrate that in, in my fiction. I don't want to say much more about it because I don't want to give away anything, but but it gives me a chance to sort of sit down and and imagine right along these lines and i like science fiction mm. uh, i've i've been into the the quote unquote extraterrestrial thing for a long time and and there are reasons why that is and i'm going to use this word of its proponents there there are reasons why that is a viable worldview for so many yeah who reject the judeo christian worldview they also reject the mechanistic, Darwinistic worldview. This is a middle path mm-hmm. because it allows transcendence, a greater intelligence, a thing beyond our own world. Yep. And, and that's attractive because it has mystery in it. And it, it, it allows that mystery, that, that transcendent thing to both guide human thought and also to give humans a means by which it can evolve to become them. Yeah. So it's all the Babel complex. It's becoming gods and it's going back to utopia. It's achieving utopia. Yep. It's the well, same thing. Well, I have extended family who, uh, who have imbibed that viewpoint and that paradigm. I want to end this uh, by giving encouragement to people and really discouraging them from falling into the rabbit hole of <laughs> conspiracies well, and it'll all suck the, the things we, out of you. all the things we've mentioned. It's a danger, and I was hesitant to bring it up because you mentioned some of this stuff. It is interesting, but folks, I just want you to know that I've just touched on it. I don't study this stuff in depthly. Mike is involved with certain aspects of his work where he gets into it more yeah. but you really could disappear in that hole and <laughs> and lose the lord and lose the kingdom and lose what really matters and so i guess my encouragement maybe I'll, I'll let you end mike but my encouragement would be focus on the lord jesus christ getting to know him surrendering every part of your life to him and his kingdom go deeper into the insurgents all the exercises that are in the book, the practical exercises, are referring to insurgents now in the gospel of the kingdom. Flesh those out and begin to take seriously through prayer and being proactive the formation of a kingdom cell. If you do that, folks, whatever's going on around you doesn't really matter because you're going to be moving the kingdom of God, advancing it in this earth, and in that way dislodging principalities and powers. Mike? Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, you, you don't you don't want to go into the rabbit hole. It is attractive. It's interesting. It's fascinating. You know, I I police my own time in it, and I, I there are only I mean you, you can't know everything about all the stuff. Um, my goal in spending any time doing this is to combat flawed thinking, not just generally, but especially when the Bible gets sucked into all this because. You know, all of these occult traditions will will use the Bible and try to control and re redefine theological language. Mm. The the goal is to is to create an alternative worldview that sounds that's right um, sounds like like what you would want to believe, or to convince you that you can keep your 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 Bible, you can keep your theology. Uh, just you just have to you know sort of 
you know, look over here and, 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 and look at it this way. And it, it can really get you off track and you wind up embracing a messiah, a, a set of beliefs that are, that are quite un-messiah, quite unbiblical. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a deception. It, it's, a, it's a careful, plotted, intelligent, attractive deception at the end of the day. And so if, if you're not tooled, you know, to be able to see that up front, I would not waste my time with it. I mean, I, I, I want you to read, you know, my novels. I want people to, to, you know, follow my Fringe Pop channel. But what I'm trying to do is, is at the end of the day, reach out to people who are lost in, the, in that community, in, in what I, you know, call the Middle Earth community or this, these alternative you know, fringe worldviews. And at the very least, get them to think better about the Bible, get them to think better about Jesus, have a higher view of Jesus and a higher view of Christians. And maybe God will use that to open them, to ready them for an encounter with someone who will be able to introduce them to the gospel directly. Well, that's great. Evangelistic purposes. Well, folks, thanks for hanging in there and staying with us. This concludes our conversations between Michael Heiser and myself on spiritual warfare. I will be coming out with an article in the future entitled Rethinking Spiritual Warfare, where I'll talk about some of the things we touched on in written form. Until next time, be good. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.